Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large at EdSource. Welcome, John. Great to be here, Lewis. Well, there's a new push in California to recruit teachers, and we'll be talking a little bit later with Donna Glassman-Sommer, who's the Executive Director of the California Center on Teaching Careers, about what she and her organization are doing. But before we get to that, there was yet another State Board of Education meeting this week. John, you were up there. The big issue on the table was what changes to make to California's plan that they had to submit to the federal government as required by the Every Student Succeeds Act. So what happened? I mean, there was a lot of pressure on the board to make substantial changes. What did they end up doing? Well, the pressure came from the federal government in terms of a letter that they sent after reading the first draft. And the Every Student Succeeds Act, as we know, governs how states fix their lowest performing schools and addresses disparities in students' groups. That's the purpose of it. California says it's doing that in its own way through its own state plan governed by the local control funding formula. So it's really confident in what it's doing is the right way. The federal government has its own way of identifying schools and wants you to fix schools and has a definite template they want you to follow and offered a lot of criticisms of the way the state planned. So the state board said, federal government, this is why we're doing what we're doing. We have a dashboard of colors we have in which we rate schools and districts and we have our own way of doing this. And so basically they said, here's an explanation, here are details, but we're not going to change it. And so they approve rewording that does that. And so now it goes back to the federal government, and I'm sure there will be more iterations of his plan. The federal government will come back. But, you know, basically there's a fundamental difference here. It's not just this is the way the federal government wants you to do it, and this is the way the state. The state thinks the way to improve schools is through districts, a district reform, a systemic approach that starts at a district office. The federal government says, no, you need to fix your lowest performing schools, which in California would be at least 300, plus hundreds of other schools that have disparities in the achievement gap. And so the state really says, no, we want to do it this way. The Fed says, this is the way ESSA works. And I don't know being the Every Student Succeeds Act. Exactly. I really don't know how they're going to resolve this, except the federal law allows a lot of flexibility. So ultimately, the question may come down to not whether you're going to dot I's and cross the T's, but in fact, can California basically satisfy the law by doing what it wants to do? So they approved the plan? Absolutely. Well, they revised it with explanations and clarifications and sent it back. And this happened on actually the same day that uh, Betsy DeVos issued letters for a bunch of states. I mean, a lot of states' plans have been approved. About half so far. And this week, they approved about a dozen state plans. And so that kind of cuts both ways. Maybe California is saying, well, see, all these states are being approved within a flexible law. We're going to get ours through eventually. Or maybe there's going to be a big confrontation because California is doing it really differently. And it will be interesting where the advocacy groups fall on this issue. And for people who are wondering, what is the federal government doing telling us how to run our schools? This has to do with funding, federal funds that flow to states and that there are these regs that states have to follow in order to get that money. Is That's that, right. Is that what this is all about? It's about, for California, $2.6 billion in money going to poor kids through Title I and other efforts. And so, yeah, it's it's... 
it's significant, but in the overall amount of money that the state spends, which is about $78 billion, you know, it's a small fraction. One of the issues here, of course, is in terms of school improvement, if there was more money going into these schools, a lot of people feel that there should be more funds to really improve those lower performing schools. California gets a lot less money compared to many, many other states. That's right. Uh, you wrote this week about a new push in California to try to revisit Prop 13 and to generate some more funding from property taxes. Is this a real effort now? Is this Does this have any chance of even getting on the ballot? Where, That's where funny. Where do things stand? Prop 13, taboo. Am I, in fact, am I allowed to talk about this in California? <laughs> Go <It's>, ahead. <laughs> it's the 40th anniversary of Prop 13, which put a strict cap on property taxes. And what this coalition of grassroots groups wants to do is say, let's keep Prop 13's restrictions on homeowners and rental properties, but let's raise taxes on business and commercial and industrial properties. And the way we're going to do that is to have those properties reassessed more often. And when you reassess properties more often, you raise the value and you can get more taxes. That's the so-called split role that they've been talking. I mean, this has been talked about for years. But why is there thinking now that there's more of a chance of one getting on the ballot and getting voters to approve it? Well, I think you're going to hear two arguments. Basically, local governments and schools need the money. And number two is it will be a populist argument that, hey, under the federal tax cut, President Trump's tax cut, businesses were the main beneficiaries of this. And in fact, the tax cut limited how much you can homeowners and individual and couples can deducting their federal taxes. You know, middle class is getting hit, upper middle class is getting hit. So the people who should pay more would be business and commercial owners because they're still getting these tax deductions and benefits. So they're the ones who need to pay a bigger burden. And this would be on the November ballot, this, right? This would be assuming that they begin to collect signatures soon. There is a draft and it needs to be, the final form needs to be done. And once that is through the process, they'll begin collecting signatures, hopefully, they hope, by November. So behind it is a coalition called California Calls. It's a bunch of organizations, dozens in Los Angeles-based uh, and also throughout the state, so the money hasn't been committed, but then there's not a final draft. But I think the supporters are serious about moving ahead this year. Well, this all relates to how much money is going into schools and also affects how much we can pay teachers, which is a major factor in recruiting teachers. We are going to segue now to Donna Glassman-Sommer, who is the executive director of the California Center on Teaching Careers. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to be here. Number one question, John and I were just talking about this. Isn't one of the biggest stumbling blocks or obstacles in the way of attracting teachers to the profession the, the, the beginning salaries? I mean, after many years, you can actually bump it up. When you start off, it starts off pretty low. And in California, the cost of living, as don't have to tell any of our listeners, is, is kind of going through the roof. And particularly in some of the large metropolitan areas where we have most of our kids concentrated. So I think that um, if we look, though, at the average daily rate of pay of what a teacher makes, um, it's really kind of comparable with those who are earning um, salaries, professional salaries. 
And I think there's flexibility for teachers. They have three months off in the summertime. If they do need to earn extra money, they have the flexibility to do that. And now with local control funding, there's lots of opportunities to do more work within the school. So if a teacher is talented and really wants to be involved in other leadership things um, that really has compensation for it, there's opportunities to do that. And then as so they can get paid a little more yes, for extra yes. duties like being a coach on a f- football team, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah. Those types of things, even now doing curriculum development, working um, on special projects that really now have emerged um, as different initiatives um, and local control funding has initiated. Let me just ask you, though, about the California Center on Teaching Careers. It has gotten going again. This was around for a long time, and then somewhere along the line, the legislature cut off funding for it. Just tell us briefly what you do and how this came about. So initially, this shortage was predicted probably 15 years ago, and then the recession hit. So it really changed the structure of what was really needed in terms of teachers. And so I think some of the things that were put in place went to rest. And then um, as a result of the reality of the economy getting better and the baby boomers really retiring, then the need really certainly emerged again and the, and the shortage is real right now. And we are really trying to really encourage more people to come into the field, to elevate the field, to see it is um, a, a great time to come into teaching and look at initiatives to recruit both credentialed teachers and inspire those who want to um, enter the profession. Recently, I think it was just the past week, you released some videos which you are hoping will be broadcast pro bono by television stations around the state to attract teachers. And the theme of it, if I could summarize or based on what I saw, was really to show that teaching is actually a more meaningful profession than a lot of other jobs that may pay more. Is that a message you think that will resonate? Absolutely. And we know that folks that are in the generation coming up into the workforce are looking for leadership. They want to make a difference in their organizations. They want to make change. And that we're trying to help them see education is the exact place that they can accomplish those goals. And in those cases, really, the challenges often are not Um, financial. It's finding work that really resonates and is meaningful to them, and they feel part of a community that they can make a difference. And how did you settle on on that message? I mean, I imagine you'll be doing other messages in other forums, but did you do focus groups, or or how how did you... There was a lot of research done to see what are um, the interests of millennials. And obviously, technology is a big issue. So we really knew that in order for us to really reach that that generation, we had to do things very different, which is why we've developed a, a portal that creates a personalized type of plan for them and and give, gives them information that they could really explore their goals about going into the teaching profession. This is somebody who's interested, is thinking about going into teaching, and it's the California Center on Teaching Careers, and I, you can Google that and you'll find, your, find the website, presumably. Yes. 
And that voidal gives them many opportunities to, um, it will be helping them also to connect and get positions even once they get their credentials. So it's not only intended to give them information, but also um, we'll be having virtual job fairs and also connecting them with districts. So what are you seeing so far? I know there was some there was a slight uptick in enrollments in teacher preparation programs. Is there movement in the right direction as far as you're concerned? I believe there is. Um, you know, for instance, I had an opportunity in a large agricultural company to talk to 40 students from UC Davis. They were all science majors. And they were coming to the Valley to think about what options they could get involved in in terms of jobs. There were a few that had shown an interest in education, which is why I was asked to come and speak there. And there were several other people that were in ag-related companies. And it was interesting because none of them really were thinking about education as a career. And after we each had about 10 minutes to really talk about what was going on in education and the exciting things, at the end, we had an opportunity to set up a table. I had 20 of them come over and say, I've never thought about teaching, and I'd really like to really learn more. That, to me said a lot that no one is talking to young people in those math and science areas about education because of some of the things you've talked about. And yet once they heard it, they were hooked. One of the things I've heard is that one of the strategies is not to sell teaching necessarily as a lifelong career, that this you could do this for five years or 10 years and then also consider other options. Is that also the way you are looking at it? We know that's realistic because of the forecast of this generation and you know how many jobs they might have. Our hope is that we will retain them in education in some way, shape, or form. Well, we've been talking with Donna Glassman-Somer, who is the Executive Director of the California Center for Teaching Careers based at the Tulare County Office of Education. You've got one of the most, I think, difficult but most important jobs in the state of California. So thank you for your work and we look forward to staying in touch with you as your efforts unfold. Well, thank you for having me and we are um, excited about what's on the horizon in the future for education. So Lewis, before we say goodbye to our listeners, let's talk about this horrific case of family abuse in Paris, California, where a couple has been charged with torture and false imprisonment of their 13 children. What adds to this haunting cases, the fact that they were authorized to run a private homeschool. So all that Louise and David Turpin had to do was fill out this affidavit. That's really shocking. Yes, John, this is just one of the most awful things that any of us in California have seen and uh, can't think of a case like this anywhere in the United States. But it does put a spotlight on how much regulation, if any, there should be of homeschooling in California. You know, one of the things is that California is not viewed as a very receptive state when it comes to school choice. We view it as not being that friendly to charter schools. We're not a conservative state that would be actively promoting homeschooling. But actually, when you look at the numbers, California does provide substantial choice. We have more charter schools and proportionately a higher number of charter schools than you would expect from a state even of California size. And we have a lot of 
kids attending homeschools, and it's about close to 200,000 kids in homeschooling programs. California is in a basket of states that would be called low-regulation states. There are some states, about 10 states, that have none, no regulation at all. In California, you do have to actually fill out a form and declare yourself a private school if you choose this route to homeschool your kids. There are actually other routes you can use. You can join these, what you can call yourself an independent study program, for example, and, and there's other ways. So, But one of the ways, a very common way, is to sign up to be a private school. And absolutely no regulation after that. The state doesn't have to visit, isn't required to visit. You don't have to have credential teachers, even though you are called a private school by law. The question is, what happens if you're in a situation like this, when kids are actually abused? Should there be some way for the state to know what's going on in those homes which are, have declared themselves schools? Well, several legislators have already expressed interest in creating more laws and whether it would involve perhaps more face-to-face -face contact, once a year, interviews, at least get you into the home or to see what's going on. And this doesn't even happen now. And the local district has no responsibility uh, over this as well. So we'll see how it shapes up. The homeschoolers, of course, are going to be very wary that this is an opportunity to put a lot of regulation. And so we'll see how, you know, what well, they come up with. They're not going to be wary. They're going to fight it. Absolutely. They probably, they will really fight this vigorously. But, you know, there's a question. We have 200,000 kids, which is, if you put it where they're all in one district, it would be twice the size of some of California's largest districts like San Diego or Long Beach. Of course, it's a private school. There's also not that much regulation of regular private schools. So where do you draw the line? And again, what's in the best interest of the child? Obviously, in most cases, homeschooling kids are not abused. This is just an outlier and an extreme edge. But uh, certainly, I think it deserves uh, taking a closer look. So that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. I've been talking with John Fensterwald. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Tan. And thanks to all of you for listening. See you next week.